This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome to Spawn, a common sense, generally fun, and hopefully helpful discussion on parenting and parenting culture and the many issues impacting families today. Hi, I'm Liz Gumbiner. I'm the co-founder of CoolMomPix.com, and I'm so happy to kick off our new season of Spawn with our first new guest. Today, I'm going to be chatting with a truly incredible woman about a topic I know is a big deal with so many of us, raising our kids in a culture of misinformation and teaching them to be media savvy so they can separate the real information from the hoaxes, the myths and the outright propaganda that's flooding our media channels and even stop it from spreading. And of course, we'll close out our show with our cool picks of the week. So first, let me tell you about my incredible guest. Dr. Seema Yasmin is an Emmy Award-winning journalist and Pulitzer Prize finalist. She's a scientist, physician, and professor at UCLA and Stanford University School of Medicine. She also worked as a disease detective for the U.S. federal government's Epidemic Intelligence Service, something I kind of want to know a lot more about. If she sounds familiar, it's because she's a regular contributor to CNN or you may have read her work in Self, Scientific American, or other publications. But today we're going to be talking all about her brand new book, Just Out, What the Fact, Finding Truth in All the Noise. It's a really essential book for young readers to help them become media literate, to help sort fact from fiction, and build the discernment necessary to help stop the spread of misinformation and disinformation that's plaguing the media landscape right now. So welcome, Seema. Hi, Liz. Thanks for having me. I am so glad you're here. You have no idea. Well, first of all, anyone who Questlove follows on Instagram, I know is like legit, right? (laughs) Is that the badge of approval? (laughs) But I love your work. And we were talking a little bit before we started recording that I just am so passionate about media literacy. So I love everything you're doing. It's so important. I've talked about it before on the podcast. And I've said here before that media literacy should really be a mandatory course in schools. And like, I know I'm biased here, but I think more kids will use that skill in life than advanced calculus. And so I'm wondering, like, what's your view on that? Do you see a movement growing around this? Like, what's our role in helping make this happen? I think all of us needs to ask, why aren't all kids being taught this really essential skill, right? Like whose agenda does it serve for most states to not mandate media literacy in K through 12 curriculum? I think it's pretty disturbing if you think about it. And it's very related to the genesis of this book in that when the January 6th insurrection happened, the guy who ended up being my editor for this book at Simon & Schuster basically tweeted something along the lines of, man, we need a book for the next 
next generation that will prevent people from being duped, from falling for propaganda, from falling for groupthink. It was amazing to me that there isn't stuff out there that's like really fun, really entertaining for teens, for kids, that gives you that wild ride through the murky worlds of misinformation and disinformation. Because I think what happens, Liz, otherwise is our kids are constantly exposed to this idea of like fake news, fake news. There's so much fake news everywhere. Hey, kids, just like be skeptical. Just don't believe anything you read, see or hear. Actually, that's a really sucky way to go through life. You'll be really miserable. You'll have a headache. You won't have a good relationship with journalism. So I'm really passionate about getting media literacy into schools. It is very much not about telling kids what to think. It's opposite of that. It's saying, let's look at this news story. Let's look at this broadcast. What's the agenda here? What are you reading between the lines? I just think we'll really empower them if we give them these skills early on to separate fact from fiction. I am so glad you brought that up because one of the things I wanted to do was share just a brief excerpt from the intro of What the Fact, because I'm really fascinated that it's really not a political book, even though politics is such a a big part of this. It's like smart and it's witty. It's easy to understand. It's a fun read. But I was really intrigued by this. You wrote, this is not a book that will tell you what to think. You, after all, are a free thinker. This book is just here to show you how your beliefs, thoughts, ideas, actions, likes, dislikes, hobbies, favorite color, love of dogs, fear of bees, craving for Indian food, number one football team, interests, passions, and disgusts are influenced, molded, sculpted, bolstered, and strengthened by the hundreds of information sources that bombard you daily by the second. I thought that was so amazing because kids are so skeptical to begin with. Was that deliberate that you wanted to set this up as like, don't worry, this is how to think, but not what to think book? Definitely. And I just want to say that was a very long sentence on purpose. I love run on sentences. (laughs) My favorite. I'm the queen. I want you to be out of breath when you read that sentence. Like, whoa, it's a lot that we're bombarded with. And yeah, it's no coincidence. Very deliberate that the first two words in the book are, hey, free thinker. Because who among us wants to say, well, I'm not a free thinker. I believe what I'm told to believe and my beliefs are molded by everything around me. It's like, no, I'm informed and I read a lot. I decide for myself what I want to think. And it's okay to believe that. But let's also be honest that all of these things, our cravings, our favorite football teams, our beliefs about the world, they are formed by this information that we are deluged with. And I want us therefore to be like, well, let me be savvy about what I let in and let me be critical about it too. And It seemed to me also that in part you were kind of giving permission to change our minds or to have wrong information and take away the guilt from that. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been studying disinformation for over a decade now. And one of my favorite fellow researchers in this field is called Nat Jenis. Um, She co-coined the term misinfodemic. Mm. And whenever we have like conference calls and stuff, Nat will ask all the disinformation researchers on the call, so someone like fess up to something you've fallen for recently that wasn't true. And it's like funny and embarrassing, but it's good to cut through that hubris of like, yeah, we, we might be the so-called experts on this, but we're bombarded with stuff. And sometimes whether it's minor or trivial or, you know, consequential, we believe things that aren't true. And it's just better for us in terms of our information 
information health, our immunity to misinformation, to be like, yeah, I'm human. I'm not a robot. Sometimes I will fall for things or let something sway me that actually isn't fact-based. And that's what what the fact is saying. You know, there's a whole section, a really fun one about taking you inside your brain. Mm. Like, how is it that our brains take in information? How is it that our brains are susceptible to stories? And, you know, anyone reading that, and I say it in the book, is like, you might think you're not the one that's biased. Everyone else is. But come on now. We (laughs) all are biased. And actually, all the studies show that higher educational attainment is correlated to stronger, deeper biases. It's okay. We're human. We're flawed. But once you know about those flaws, you can be more on the lookout for them. And you can remind yourself, oh, I think I just fell for that because of my pre-existing beliefs and my biases. Let's hold on a second before I retweet that thing, repeat that thing. Let me just check in with myself about why I believe this. Oh, I love that. And again, this is not just about news, right? I was thinking about the first time my kids became aware of the whole, I read it on the internet or I saw it on TikTok syndrome where they tried to make some sort of like mug cake in 30 seconds that was on some life hacks video. And it was a disaster and like blew up our kitchen pretty much. And I was like, okay, so basically every recipe you see on the internet is not necessarily legit or tested. And we had a whole talk about it. And I can't imagine any parent who has kids on social media who, you know, the kids haven't come home at some point with some idea where they said, oh, I read it on Wikipedia or I saw it on the internet. So I'm really glad that you kind of make the distinction. Misinfodemic, by the way, is amazing. That's an amazing phrase. So I'd like you to talk a little bit more about the difference between misinformation and disinformation. And you also bring up a term that may be new to lots of us, which is malinformation. What are the difference between those three and which are our kids most exposed to? Yeah, let's get into that. But let me just say that mug cake (laughs) anecdote, like what parent has not been there? It may not have been a cake. It may have been some other trend on TikTok. That's a media literacy conversation, right? Mm -hmm. And so just this week, just in September, Illinois mandated its first ever law that says media literacy has to be taught in high school. The way that it's been put forward is really great because it's saying, yeah, you could teach it in civics, of course. Yeah, you could teach it in English, but you can teach media literacy in PE and you can teach it in a science or math class. They had a segment on NPR with this professor, Yonti Friesen, who's from Chicago, great, great researcher who helped write the bill. And the journalist was really like, but how do you teach media literacy in PE? Except you, Liz, just made the case for like, how do you teach media literacy when it comes to like home economics or a cooking class? It's relevant to everything. And so it's not a dry conversation this certainly is not a dry book. It's a really like cheeky, funny book with a ton of anecdotes. Oh yeah, you talk about the person who conducted research to determine whether sheep grew on trees. Yeah, the vegetable lamb of Tartary. Like you just have to read that to understand like what the, <laughs> I should so say, what the They do, they change all the time. Well, we need to be having this conversation about science too, right? It's a science literacy conversation and that science is not a textbook. Science is not a bunch of hard facts. Science is a process in which you ask a question, you test it and guess what? The year after you've determined something, it could change. Suddenly a planet that we thought was a planet is a star. It's not, you know what I mean? Like these things change and we need to be really flexible. Sure. Coming back to your question, there's a whole bit in what the fact that's about the words we use to talk about lies and false information. And the reason I get into this is two reasons. One, fake news, fake news, fake news. It's just been like lobbed around like a word grenade and especially 
thrown at journalists mm. by people in power who do not want to be held to account, right? So it's a really good way of like discrediting someone. Ah, you found out this about my scandal. It's fake news. And it's really been weaponized against journalists who are doing accountability work. Mm. But also it's a really vague term. Fake news just like lumps everything together. I was thinking about this with my physician hat on, like to help a patient, you have to make a diagnosis. And a diagnosis is so helpful because it's specific. You're using language to diagnose exactly what's happening. And so that's why it's good to talk about misinformation versus disinformation versus malinformation. Like it's not just an academic exercise. It helps you think about why is this false information circulating? Like who could have circulated it and what's their agenda? So for example, misinformation, that's false information that's spread by somebody who actually doesn't realize that it's not fact-based or true and who isn't trying to hurt you. So it might be a friend who is saying to you, I heard if you avoid icy soda drinks, it protects you from COVID-19, like it will make you immune to it. That's not true, but it counts as misinformation if they didn't realize it's true and they're actually not out to harm you. They really actually just think that's like some helpful piece of information. So misinformation is sometimes somebody intending to be helpful. Exactly, but they're wrong and it could end up hurting you, right? Because you might walk around without a mask and not get vaccinated just because you're avoiding like icy sodas, but that wasn't their intention and they themselves were misinformed to begin with. Contrast that with disinformation, which is still false information, but it's knowingly false and it's being spread with the intention of causing harm. So there's been tons of examples of this coming from all sorts of places, but I'll tell you like one story coming out of of surprise, not surprising, Russia. Mm -hmm. There's a Kremlin-linked organization there called the Internet Research Agency, which is like a bland office building. People work in 12-hour shifts and it's their job to spread disinformation on social media platforms and they're really good at it. And we have all these reports now of how these bad actors from Russia seeded these disinformation campaigns that moved the UK towards voting for Brexit, interfered with elections in the US. It's really powerful stuff. And I will say it's taking that same diagnostic approach that I take as a physician, Russian bad actors, but it could be any bad actors looking to fragment American society will diagnose existing diseases, diagnose existing concerns. Mm. So it might be, you know, polarization along the lines of race. And they did target the Black Lives Matter movement. It might be polarization along the lines of vaccines. And they really did stoke that anti-vaccine debate mm -hmm. that happened a lot during Ebola. The Internet Research Agency had the Yahoo News account back in 2014 and said, breaking news, Ebola outbreak in Atlanta. What? And that, of course, then seed panic. They also created a false homepage that looked just like CNN.com that had photos, apparently, of this Ebola outbreak in Atlanta. There was no Ebola outbreak in Atlanta. I never heard this. That is terrifying and unbelievable. It is. A lot of people did hear it, though. And of course, what that can do is overwhelm emergency services. It can cause panic. It can cause all kinds of chaos. So I'm curious how disinformation is different from malinformation, because that's a term I don't see a lot. So malinformation is actually not false information. So misinformation and disinformation, the thing they have in common is they are spreading false information just with different levels of knowingness and different intentions. But malinformation is truthful information, but information that should not have gone public. And it is spread with the intention of causing harm, maybe to expose somebody, or maybe it's truthful information that's 
stripped of context and therefore shared with a particular narrative to push hate against a particular group. And I go into examples in the book and I talk about like the photos and things that are not doctored. You don't even need photoshopping skills. You don't need to create a deep fake if you strip an image of its context and then you use that image to spread a really hateful, dangerous narrative about a certain group. So misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, they're all a bit different, but we group them together under this umbrella term of information disorder. And then in what the fact, because I want young people to be super savvy about this stuff and be able to like point at something and call it out. We talk about different levels of false information and different types that also fall under that umbrella of information disorder. So for example, we talk about false context or we talk about satire and parody because they need to understand that too. And we Mm. call it to be examples of how even the New York Times with its amazing fact checkers has sometimes run stuff that's from the onion but thought it was accurate and then had to issue a correction. So it's a good reminder too that there's so many levels to this. There's different types of false information and actually giving them names makes it less overwhelming because you know what something is. I I think that's great. And believe me, I'd love to never hear the phrase fake news ever again. So I'm with you. But you know, I'm thinking about parents and what we hear from our listeners and from our readers on Cool Mom Picks. And it's very easy to blame the internet and social media for all of this. And I know that that's certainly an easy way info can spread. But one of my favorite college classes, and this is how I got interested in media literacy when I went to Boston University, it was called Public Opinion and Propaganda. So shout out to my professor, Toby Berkowitz. It was like one of my favorite classes. I still have my textbook. I still think about it to this day. So clearly these kinds of tactics way predate Instagram, predate Putin, and they predate, you know, the printing press, right? So this isn't a new thing. But I'm still interested in, from your research, how you've learned that social media does impact the spread of false information and creating more confirmation bias, because that is the majority of the ways that our kids are exposed to it. They're not generally watching Fox News, I would think. For sure. And thank you for bringing up the fact that this isn't a new phenomenon. I think that can be kind of helpful too. It feels really bad now, but actually by the time you finish, reading what the fact, you feel armed with tools to protect yourself, protect your community. And also with this knowledge that social media can accelerate and amplify the spread of this stuff. And we'll get into that in a second. But these aren't new problems as long as there have been humans on this planet. Mm -hmm. There have been people peddling fake cures and there's been snake oil salespeople. And one of my funnest parts of writing what the fact was sharing the terminology for the quacks (laughs) over the ages, over the times, you know, the the English language language has evolved. So like from the 1300s, the 1400s, there were terms like taradiddler for the person that spreads false news. Like this isn't new. We've just evolved different language. And so when I give like keynotes and stuff about this stuff, I flash some of these 300 year old terms and I'm like, if you know a taradiddler, like start using that word against them. Because I think it's a reminder that these are age old problems. But yep, social media has come along and it has certainly accelerated the problem. I use the contagion model to talk about this Mm. in what the fact, because I think it helps a young reader kind of get a grasp and picture, visualize the connections we have between people, visualize the ways that a tweet or a meme might spread. But it's also because I am a disease detective. I trained as an 
epidemiologist and I would use these mathematical models to track how an infection would spread. So I was well versed in that. It's so important. I think one thing kids do understand is the algorithm. I mean, I've been hearing from my kids forever, like, oh, I'm on Hamilton TikTok or I'm on LGBTQ TikTok. Like they understand that the algorithm pushes them into different corners. So I think that's actually a great way to help explain that what you consume continues to follow you. I really, really appreciated your chapter on bias and belief and why we fall for BS because <laughs> it really talks about how the brain itself has a lot to do with our biases or what we're prone to believe and that biases are so ingrained once we learn something and once we believe it to be a truth, it's hard to change. I'm curious from your research, what can change a deeply held belief? Like if our kids are sure that icy sodas help prevent COVID, how do we change that? I think we change it by having conversations about how we form beliefs. And it's a bit uncomfortable, but being honest that beliefs are not always, or maybe not even often based on facts, that beliefs are to do with belonging actually, and that the truth is tribal, that facts are formed based on what's convenient for us to believe often. And I get into this in the book, because on the face of it, you're like, oh, I don't want to believe that. We're human. I want us to think we're rational, logical animals, but we're often not. Especially when it comes to our beliefs. And the way that I came to understand this and the way that I explain it in what the fact is that, you know, that gray and white jelly inside our skulls, it evolved in a way that allowed our species to survive and survive really vicious predators because we stuck together in our small groups. And the way that we did that was by sharing beliefs. It was beliefs that were collective that gave us a sense of identity. So you might be like imagining cavemen and women right now <laughs> holding a club and like fighting against some like woolly mammoth. But that analogy brings us right to where we are now, maybe not fighting a woolly mammoth. But think about a conversation you've had with a friend, family member, loved one about COVID vaccines. Say it's been someone in your life who has a belief about the vaccines. It's really different, kind of diametrically opposed to your belief. And you have found that when you like push back a little bit against that belief and you're like, well, no, that's not what I read. And I read this study or this data, this story about what you're saying and actually like what the facts show are. Think about it. That should be a pretty cool conversation, right? Like I read a thing and it disagrees with what you say and here's the evidence. Often those conversations do not go that way. They're so heated or they're so tense to the point that we don't even want to have them. And sometimes we avoid them. And I do that too, because mm. I have some family members who have really strange beliefs about vaccines, even though I do what I do. But the reason that that happens, the reason those conversations blow up makes sense if you think about how our gray matter and our white matter evolved, because our beliefs are so deeply intertwined with our identity. What we believe makes us who we are. So if I push back against you and I'm like, well, I am a doctor and I think vaccines have saved lives and vaccines cause adults and you should get vaccinated. I might be pushing up against not just your belief in vaccines, but who you are. And that counts for sports allegiances. Yes. Like I remember freshman year in Boston, <laughs> this will date me, but it was the Mets versus the Yankees. And like people were beating each 
each other up in the street over it again we're square and i was like it's a baseball game like these allegiances these beliefs these commitments to the things that define us are that deeply ingrained like i saw a video last week of kids at i think university of alabama tipping over cars because of a football game and i thought wow so that's not even about covid <laughs> or politics right. that's just like your team won a game and i lived in dallas for a few years when i was a reporter at the dallas morning news and you know i can tell you like the cowboys is not a team it's a religion <laughs> and, and i'm guilty of it too like i can't be your friend if you're a man united fan like i just <laughs> cannot that's just wrong <laughs> but knowing where that comes from knowing why our brains evolved to be that way it was about survival and it was only liz you know it was only when i talked to evolutionary biologists that i understood this because i'm an epidemiologist i love data i love load like millions of data points but i know that in a conversation with a patient who's adamantly opposed to vaccines shoving five million data points at her in 16 studies it doesn't move people mm. but a story does and it was when evolutionary biologists said to me it's not about an intellectual perspective it's about an interactionist perspective it's about belief belonging and building community that's when I was like oh yeah that explains so much of why we are the way we are and it could be frustrating because you're like no I just want to hit you with the data and the numbers how can you not see the facts here but actually pouring facts onto a polarized conversation is like pouring kerosene onto a fire it doesn't help and so what the book does what the fact offers you tips on how to have evidence-based conversations are so using these new techniques or newer techniques that tell you how to effectively debunk a myth but the book also has scripts for how to disagree because I realize as I'm writing this that like we can't have conversations about media literacy I can't explain how things go viral on TikTok if I don't also talk to you about how to effectively disagree with someone in a way that doesn't blow up your friendship and that's the thing like why don't we all get taught that yeah I love that really the end of the book that chapter how to debunk and disagree is so important because we feel like we're doing a good job as parents teaching our kids like how to identify news that isn't real or how not to be a bully and spread false information about people in school you know we try to have these conversations but I think a lot of us don't talk about how to debunk the myth or how to disagree so that we can be a part of stopping the cycle and I think kids really appreciate the ability to be proactive and have a role so I would love if you could talk a little bit more about that life skill not just identifying information or rumors or hoaxes but giving them a way to be part of the solution how do we change other people's minds and look I was in my 30s before I learned that conflict can be a good thing before that I was a person who was really conflict avoidant like in relationships I thought that made it a good thing until I learned that you can have good conflict and so what I've done in the book is distill those tips about how to have good conflict and actually conflict can be very loving it can make you feel really heard we do not all have to agree with one another for there to be harmony in society like no that would make us bots and it would be really boring but there are ways to effectively disagree which can move the needle a little bit on someone's thoughts or you know can lead to more and more conversations and more open-mindedness so I like that I get into that in the book and then there's that script as well as like how to disagree with somebody that yeah. takes you step by step through a conversation so it doesn't feel like an abstract like here's a list of tips like no watch it in action 
and then see how you can do it too. Because I think that's empowering as opposed to overwhelming. Yeah, I agree. Plus, I have to say on a personal level, my mom actually teaches Socratic dialogue. So I loved your section on how kids can have a Socratic dialogue with one yeah. another. Unlike something as simple as like somebody complaining about another friend. It's really funny part of the book and really smart. But maybe you can also take us through some of your top tips on how to BS-proof your brain, which is what you call it, BS-proof <laughs> your brain. Because those tips are so terrific. You have just a series of points with short paragraphs about like what we should know on keeping our brain a little freer of BS than we probably have now. So this is the really exciting stuff that's at the cutting edge of my field. And we're doing a lot of research and outreach about this idea that, you know, the same way you bring it back to vaccines, you can get vaccinated and inoculate yourself against something so that you've been exposed to a little bit of it. And then when you get full on exposed, your body's ready. You have the antibodies, you can fight back. You have this layer of defense. Well, we think and we're learning much more about the fact that you can do the same for your brain, for your beliefs. You can develop mental immunity or cognitive immunity and develop these antibodies, we call them mental antibodies, against BS. And one of the first ways that you do that is by looking in the mirror and admitting that you too, like me, like you, like all of us, are vulnerable to falling for BS. And actually, Mm -hmm. like I said, the more educated you are, the more staunchly held your biases might be, which actually makes you less immune to falling for BS, right? It actually makes you more vulnerable. Hmm. That's step one. Be aware that you, like everyone, are vulnerable to this stuff. And then the thing to do is to say, yeah, I have some strongly held beliefs, but beliefs aren't binary. They're not like an on-off light switch. I don't have to say, yes, I believe. No, I do not believe. What I recommend in What the Fact is assigning a strength level to your beliefs and saying, you know what? When it comes to like genetically modified organisms, here's what I believe. And I think it's on a level of like seven or eight. What that does really helpfully is when someone has a conversation with you that offers you information that challenges your belief, it makes you more open-minded to taking in what they're saying and then saying, oh, you know what? That you've taught me something or I've learned something new. Based on that, I'm actually going to ramp my strength level for this belief up to an eight. Or actually, you know what? I need to like put it down a couple of notches down to a five or a six. And so just that idea that you don't have to be, yes, no, I believe, I do not believe, keeps you open to taking in more evidence, which we said things change, facts change all the time, and you reassess your beliefs. That is really helpful in building up those mental antibodies and developing kind of resistance to falling for lies. Because you might think there's strength or there's safety and just like, no, this is what I believe. But you think about the people in your life who are like that who won't budge on something, who won't even be open to taking in information. It's not a good way to exist. It makes you resistant to the facts, actually. So those would be my top two tips. I think those are fantastic. And I love the book so much. I don't know why I should be surprised because you're so entertaining, but it's so much more entertaining than I expected. I really think teens will love it. I just want to wrap up by coming back to this idea of media literacy in schools because it's so important to me. How soon do you think we should start talking to kids? And, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about teens and what they can understand in social media, but you brought up K through 12 literacy. How do we talk to our kindergartners or our six or seven year olds about this? What do we say? You know, the 
the funny thing is what the fact was my first time writing for a young adult audience. Although I've heard people say, I bought it for my kid, but I read it and now I'm buying it for my grandmother or my mother. (laughs) It was so fun to write for that audience. And I was like, yeah, I just want to write for teens and kids now. And with media literacy, I'm like, oh, how can I write this same book, but for eight-year-olds or for five-year-olds? Or you know what? We need board books for (laughs) one-year-olds about these topics. Because I think one, it's so important to develop critical thinking skills, to have these conversations about beliefs and how we look at the world really early on. But the second thing is there's so much research that shows that young kids are capable of having these conversations, things that are profound and nuanced and complex. You know, people listening to this know this because you can have the most profound conversation with a six-year-old that kind of like makes you question everything you've ever believed about the world. But we should be having these questions younger and younger. And it doesn't have to be the kind of conversation you might imagine. It might be just a question about a belief they hold and why they think that. Or maybe you're watching something together and you have a conversation about who made this and why do you think it's coming off the way it is? That's just a great way to open the door and start conversations about this and then gradually build on those conversations over the years. Boy, I would love to see you do the research uh, and have one for parents (laughs) of younger kids before they got into social media. I think that would be really valuable. So listen, it's a fantastic book. It's called What the Fact? Finding Truth in All the Noise by Dr. Seema Yasmin. You can find it on Amazon, bookshop.org. Visit your local indie bookstore. Please go to the library. And where can we best find you and follow you on social? I follow you on Twitter and Instagram personally, but what are your favorite channels? I'm getting into TikTok more and more, which is both enlightening and disturbing a little bit. (laughs) And I've been on TikTok because I was on it to like research this book, but just recently I started posting on TikTok and like just, you know, exploring it even more. But I like Instagram still. So I'm at Dr. Seema Yasmin on both of those, but my website's seemayasmin.com. And also to accompany this book, there's a teaching guide with lesson plans and activities that you can use in the classroom, but used to just start discussions at home too. And it's got chapter guides and stuff. That teaching guide for What the Fact was made by the Pulitzer Center. So if you go to pulitzercenter.org, you can find the teaching guide there. And I think that's also a helpful way of starting those conversations. Oh, that's fantastic. And I will link that up, information about the book and everything you heard today on coolmompics.com and on our podcast page in the show notes. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. Fortunately, you're sticking around for... As our guest, you get to go first. I can't wait to hear what you have. I have a really cool pick of the week. I want to see if you can outcall me. <laughs> it's a new book. It's a middle grade novel called Eden's Everdark. It has a gorgeous black and purple cover and it's written by Karen Strong. You know, I think everyone or adults, whatever ages should read middle grade novels and young adult novels because there's some amazing literature for different age groups that we can all enjoy. And Eden's Everdark is such a gorgeous kind of gothic book set in the South on an island off the coast of what I imagine would be like off the coast of the Carolinas, maybe. It's a story about this girl and her father and she's lost her mom and she's learning more, becoming more deeply immersed in her Black Southern culture. But it's also a book about grief and how young people 
grapple with grief. And I, I love the fact that there's a book that does that, right? But it just does it so beautifully. It sounds a little like the vanishing half, at least oh. in spirit. Not sure, but I'm looking at it right now. Eden's Ever Dark. It looks like a great yeah. cover. And I love YA. So that's a fantastic yes. uh, recommendation. That's my cool pick of the week. Check out Eden's Ever Dark by Karen Strong. It's a really beautiful novel. I love it. Adding to Q. Add to Q type, 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 type. <laughs> um, so my pick in a kind of different direction, I want to point everybody towards countonmothers.org. Full disclosure, this is a new initiative started by my old school friend, Jennifer Bransford. Some of you actually may know her, her soap opera star days back in the day. But she started this amazing group called Count on Mothers. And it's really interesting. It's an app. It's a digital tool. And they created it with the purpose of uniting mothers and surveying them on policies that directly affect our well-being and our families. They give you policy news, information. They survey your opinions in a simple yes-no format, like, you know, should the contraceptive bill pass? And they share that information with legislatures so they can try to kind of get a critical mass of the voice of moms. It's really interesting. I think the more people that join, the more successful it'll be. So I'm hoping people will sign up for it. I can vouch for it. It's called Count on Mothers. You can find them at countonmothers.org or on Instagram at the same name. It's a really interesting project and I can't wait to see where it goes. Well, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Spawned. Huge thanks to our awesome engineer, John Bowen, and of course, to the brilliant Seema Yasmin for her time and energy and her great book, What the Fact. Whether you're new to Spawned or have been with us for ages, we'd be grateful if you could take the time to subscribe to the show. And if you happen to love it, leave us a five-star review and some kind words. It's always appreciated. And if you want to talk about anything you heard today, hit us up. We're on all the socials. But personally, I spend most of my time on Twitter, some on Instagram. We're at Cool Mom picks or my personal handle is at mom101 on both platforms and I am very chatty. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Spawn. This is Liz. Have a great day.